For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, well, this book of 2 Corinthians, um, it's a book written in conflict. There were a lot of false teachers attacking Paul, attacking his character in this church in the ancient city of Corinth. And um, they were putting the church in danger by discrediting Paul. You know, um, for them to turn, turn him away from Paul and turn him to their teaching, you know, it, it, it would turn them from the healthy, life-giving power of God's grace to the law that these Jewish teachers were trying to put them back under. And Paul, he's really been trying to avoid engaging in comparisons with these false teachers. He doesn't want to come down into the muck with them. And yet... You know, and it's because he knew the scriptures. He knew Proverbs 26, 4 said, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And so he didn't want to stoop to their level. He didn't want to engage in the so-called urination match with a skunk. And yet, at this point, he realizes this has gone on for long enough. Because he also knows the very next verse in Proverbs is, Sometimes you need to answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. And Paul says, the time has come. Let's go. Remember last week we saw he started the chapter by saying, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. He can't believe he's got to boast about his own credentials. And he picks up that thread here where we begin in verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me as you would tolerate a fool. So I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. He's like, Jesus did not engage in this sort of talk. He, he would cite other witnesses when people asked him about himself. So he's like, I'm sort of, I'm doing something that Jesus never really did here, but you guys have driven me to this, and I can't believe I've got to do this. Since many are boasting the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you're so wise. In fact, you put up with anyone who enslaves you, like the false teachers were doing, bringing them under bondage to the law, or exploits you or takes advantage of you, like the false teachers were doing, milking these guys for all they were worth financially, whereas Paul had refused to take money from the Corinthians. He says, or if anyone puts on airs or slaps you in the face, probably hyperbole from these false teachers, and yet there is a controlling, abusive style of leadership that does anything to keep people under their control. And that seems to be what they were doing here. And Paul's describing what the false teachers were like. And he sa- and, but then he says, to my shame, I admit we're, we were too weak for that. We didn't do any of these things. We were way too nice. We brought you God's love. We didn't take your money. And we were kind to you. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. He's really building up this boasting here. He's getting ready for it. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. That's basically the same thing. (laughs) Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. (laughs) Which is also the same thing as Hebrews and Israelites. These false teachers are very proud of their Jewish heritage. Are they servants of Christ? I can't believe I'm talking like this. I feel like I'm out of my mind. And this time he twists a little bit. He says, I am more than them. And he's going to boast about 
his credentials as a servant of Christ. Let's see how Paul's resume stacks up to theirs. Let's see what Paul says when he boasts. He says, I have worked much harder, verse 23. I've planted far more churches, really dozens of home churches at this point. I was educated by Gamaliel, the most prestigious rabbi of our day. I became a Pharisee. I was selected for the Sanhedrin. And then Christ met me personally on the Damascus Road and named me an apostle. And I was called in by Barnabas to help lead the revival at Antioch. And then they picked me for the first missionary journey with Barnabas, but pretty soon he was following my leadership. I started church planting movements all along the island of Cyprus, not to mention Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. I was right at the Jerusalem Council, and they were wrong. I was the one who started the church planting movement in Philippi. I was the one who started the church at Thessalonica and brought the gospel to Berea. I took on the philosophers in Athens and I planted the church at Corinth. This is a long verse. <laughs> I was the one who started the revival in the great city of Ephesus. I've written no fewer than four books of the Bible by now. Not counting the one I'm presently writing. Not counting the eight more I will write in the future. And I haven't even mentioned Hebrews and Luke and Acts, which will be written under my apostolic authority. And don't get me started boasting of all the awesome disciples I've led to Christ and raised up as leaders. Superstars like Timothy, Luke, Priscilla, Aquila, Sosthenes, Crispus, and Titius Justus. Perhaps you've heard of them. So maybe when those false teachers have started church planting movements on multiple continents or written a single chapter of scripture, we can have another conversation. But until then, I'll see you later. Chumps. (laughs) Chumps. <laughs> All right, that's not what Paul wrote, okay? <laughs> that's why you need to bring your Bibles to CT. He could have written it, it was all true. But when he boasts, he boasts a little differently. You know, what, what else he doesn't say is, God has given me great wealth. He's given me a lovely house and a second vacation home and a shiny new camel to jet around town and perfect health. Because none of that would have been true. That's not how he boasts either. Now, he doesn't boast like the world or like health and wealth preachers. How does he boast? He says in verse 23, for real this time, I have worked much harder. You know, I've been in prison more frequently well, in the book of Acts, we only, have, we only see one prison term before the writing of 2 Corinthians. There's another one at the end of the book of Acts, but that hadn't happened yet when he wrote this. And yet he says more frequently, so that it implies it wasn't just the one time. It sounds like many times that he was in prison. Not recorded in the book of Acts. I've been flogged more severely than them. I've been exposed to death again and again. Like five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. What was this punishment? Well, Deuteronomy says the worst punishment you could give a criminal is 40 lashes. The Mishnah then says, let's, let's stick with 39 in case we miscount. The legalists didn't want to, you know, violate the law. And so they lowered it to 39 and they said, let's do the first 13 on the front and the next 26 on the back with a whip. Sometimes there'd be bits of glass and bone in it. Um, Acts records none of these five whippings, though, from the Jews. These are not in there. So when did this happen? 
there's a good chance this happened during Paul's lost years. There's a whole decade that we really have, have very little information on in the book of Acts. This would roughly the mid-30s, 36 or so A.D. until about 46 A.D. What do, we, what do we know about these lost years? Well, just a little bit of background on Paul. You know, he was the top of his class in Judaism. He was educated by Gamaliel, the top rabbi. He was selected for the Pharisees, an elite group of 6,000. He was, he was selected for the Sanhedrin which only had 70 members. These were the most powerful men in Judaism, and he was there probably in his early 30s. <clears throat> but everything changed one day on the road to Damascus. He was going there. He was actually a persecutor of the church, a killer of Christians, and on the way to Damascus, he was confronted by Jesus Christ. And he had an encounter with the risen Lord, and he was appointed an apostle. And Paul realized over the next few days, everything I believed is wrong. And he he rethought through the Old Testament. He was revealed the truth by Jesus Christ. And it says when he got to Damascus, instead of killing Christians there, he went out and stunned everyone by preaching the very faith that he was previously trying to destroy. And pretty soon, the religious leaders there set their target right on Paul. They wanted to kill him. In fact, he says a little bit later in this passage and elsewhere, he had to get lowered out of the city in a basket at night by his disciples. And so here we have the great Paul coming in so triumphantly with such high expectations, leaving in such shame how the mighty have fallen. From there, he returned to Jerusalem. And after another plot on his life, they, the Christians there immediately sent him back home up into modern-day Turkey to his hometown of Tarsus. And how was he received at Tarsus? Did his family and friends welcome him with open arms? He left Paul the great rabbi, the Sanhedrin member, he comes back, Paul the fugitive, Paul the Christian. And did they accept the new Paul? It doesn't appear so. You know, have you ever noticed how Paul's family is not mentioned at all? Almost not at all in the, in the New Testament. There's one mention of him, and none in his epistles, one in the book of Acts when his nephew tipped him off to a plot on his life in Acts 23. There's no mention of his wife or children either. He, he couldn't have, there's no way he could have gotten all the way up to the level of Sanhedrin in that culture as a single man. He would have had to be married. Maybe he had kids. We don't know. But it, was it during these lost years when he was not just rejected by his family, but is it possible that, I mean, maybe his wife passed away, but we know by 1 Corinthians he's single again. And so what happened? Did his wife leave him because he became a Christian? thinking she was doing the right thing. There's no mention of that. You know, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you know, if, you're, if you become a Christian and your spouse will not stay with you, you need to let him go. And it's possible that he spoke that verse with a lot more sorrow than we realize. How did he receive 39 lashes five times there in 10 years? Well, he told us in verse 23, he says I, it was as a servant of Christ. He probably went home and he said, look, I was wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. Salvation does not come through works of the law, but through faith in him, Tr putting our trust in him. And people said, no, I reject that message. And he said, no, seriously, this, this is the truth. And they said, you better be careful. And he, and he continued to preach Christ, that salvation was a free gift to anyone who receives Christ. And so they brought him up in front of the synagogue, and they tied him up, and they gave him the 39 lashes. And he healed up, and he preached again, and they did it again, and again, and again. 
five times in 10 years. This was so savage, it's hard to even, even fathom this. Here's a picture from 1863 of a man who had received this, this flogging one time. Um, you can see his back is just pure scar tissue. And uh, he said of the whipping, he said, it was so excruciating, I don't even remember it happening now. But I know that it, I laid in bed for two months recovering from this. Paul got this, and then he got four more on top of that, each one healing and being ripped back open, not to mention what his, what his chest would have looked like. I mean, this guy, his, upper, his torso must have been just scar tissue before he ever really started the ministry that we read about in the book of Acts. Paul says, yeah, how many times have your false teachers been flogged? Five times for me. Three more times I was beaten with rods. We only have one record of this in Acts chapter 16 at Philippi. The other two are simply not mentioned. One of these alone would have been enough to cripple you for life, breaking ribs, uh, destroying your spine. And yet Paul says, that happened to me three times. What's your resume, false teachers? Once I was stoned. (laughs) So, I mean, there's different ways to get stoned. Um, <laughs> he's talking about the really painful kind. The kind we read about in Acts chapter 14 at Lystra. Where they're so mad about what he was teaching, they drag him out of the city, push him off a, the highest cliff they can find, and they look down, and if he's not dead yet, then the two or more witnesses throw a two-person-sized boulder down onto him. And then if he's still not dead... Everybody else just starts throwing rocks at him until they, they finally are convinced that he's dead. That happened to Paul. They left him for dead. Um, Axo tells us he got up after the crowd left, dusted himself off, and went back into the city <laughs> before leaving the next day. But Paul says, yeah, what about you guys? That ever happened to you for your serving, service in Christ's name? You can see why he can tell the Galatians later, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. There's a shipwreck in Acts, but it's not until Acts 27. That hadn't happened yet. There's three other times. He's, he's there. He's, he's floating in a lifeboat or perhaps clinging to something that floats, a piece of wood. One, one day just, you know, spending a whole night and a day at the open sea before a rescue boat came and got him. Paul says, that's what happened to me for serving Christ. I've been constantly on the move, traveling, nonstop. I've been in danger from rivers and danger from bandits. Yeah, traveling was not safe back then at all. I've been in danger from my fellow Jews and in danger from Gentiles. Plenty of that in the book of Acts. In danger in the city, in danger in the country. In danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. That's a, um, you know, without sleep. I mean, this would be, you can't sleep because maybe there's no time to sleep because you have to keep working. Maybe you can't sleep because you're in so much pain that all you can do is lie there. Maybe you can't sleep because of the pressures that are pressing down upon you. Hunger and thirst, that's something we really don't even know here in the United States. Uh, Not on the level that Paul would have 
I've been cold and naked. You know, this is uh, not like, you know, I just need to throw an extra blanket on, but this is just, this is, I'm out, I'm wet, I'm cold. This is like camping cold, right? But times a much greater degree than we experience here as well. I got to say, I really can't relate to most of the things on this list here. Uh, last year, I was over in uh, Ivory Coast talking to some pastors there that had experienced real persecution. And the one guy was telling me how um, the last time a civil war broke out there, he had to just flee because there was persecution against Christians. He went out and lived in the jungle for a couple years. And uh, I was like, so what's that like? He's like, well, you're just out there. You just find a place that just sort of surrounded by leaves where people can't really see you if they're coming through and you just try to survive. You're out there with your net. And I was like, so what is the net for like mosquitoes and malaria? And he was like, no. The net's so you can make a hammock so you don't sleep on the ground and get bit by snakes at night. Better to be bitten by a mosquito than a snake, he said. I thought, yeah, that's a good point. The whole time he was out there, he was writing letters back to his, his, the churches that he had planted throughout that country. It's a guy that had really suffered as a minister of Christ. Well, I like the Apostle Paul here, honestly. And to see the joy that, this, that these guys had, how convinced they were of what they believed, a level of conviction that has been through the, the fires of suffering. And that's what Paul had experienced. He was not in this for the money. In fact, as soon as he got into it, he lost the money. He went from powerful and rich to poor and mistreated. And he says, this was all worth it. And I count everything before this but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. And I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul understood better than we do that the whole of Christianity is based on, a, on Jesus Christ who died and rose and that resurrection power is what he had started to experience. The life out of death principle that Jesus so clearly taught. And then he says, besides everything else, all these things that only happen every once in a while, I mean five times total, three times I was beaten, he says, there's something I couldn't get away from. It's a suffering that I experienced every single day, and that is this, the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Something he couldn't get away from his concern for these people he loved. He said, who is weak and I do not feel weak to get that report of that brother who is struggling in his faith, who's almost walked away from God. Paul says, oh, sick to my stomach. That sister who's suffering, who's weak, who's on the verge of death, and he says, oh, my heart goes out to her. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn, whether that's burning with anger against the false teachers that were leading this, this person astray, whether that's burning with compassion and sorrow, because Paul knows what it's like to fall into sin. He's been there. He hates for someone else to go through that. He hates to hear about that. This worry, this pressure grinding him down. Now, hold on. I thought the Bible said this, that anxiety was a sin. You know, Paul, isn't Paul admitting to sin here? Well, it's not quite that simple. If you really let yourself care about people, if you let yourself care about the Lord's work, then that care, that care can become all-consuming. You want what's best for people. You're giving of yourself in every way. You've invested so much in others. 
that your joy becomes to some extent wrapped up in theirs. And that's why he says in Philippians 4, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he says, feeling anxious, it's not that you just try to turn that feeling off. No, let your anxiety drive you to prayer, he says. Let that, that weakness become strength. And he says, you got to come with an attitude of thanksgiving too, not just complaining about everything that's going wrong. You got to try to get a right perspective and that can only come through thanksgiving. But he says, your anxiety, he says in 1 Peter, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Transit, you got to pray until you've handed that burden over to the Lord. That is the only way to sanity in this life. And he says here in Philippians 4, he says, and if you do this, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so there's a peace that is insane according to what the world thinks, but because I have allowed these worries to drive me near to the Lord, I've transferred my burden onto him and I can be happy, safe, right up against the rock of my salvation. And Paul says, yeah, if I must boast, I'll boast of things that show my weakness, he says. How about this for a boasting competition? Here's my resume as a minister of Christ. But he says, you know what? I'm not done yet. I got to go on boasting in chapter 12. Although there's nothing to be gained, let me talk about visions and revelations from the Lord. Apparently these guys were boasting about all their, experience, all their spiritual experiences there's actually quite a few of these recorded for Paul throughout the book of Acts, these different visions that he has. There's at least six, seven, eight, nine of them recorded. But he's going to talk about one that's not recorded anywhere in the book of Acts. Another one recorded during his lost years. And he's going to talk about it in the third person, but it becomes clear he's, he's sort of being modest. He's actually talking about an experience that he himself had. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. We're talking early 40s AD. Caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Only God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows. I think I already mentioned that. He was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Whoa. So during this incredible time of suffering, Paul, the young Christian, perhaps rejected by his family, his friends, seeking to do the Lord's will, says he had this experience and it was so intense he doesn't even know. It says he was caught up. That's our word for rapture. He was literally caught up. In, he visited heaven. He's like, I don't know if my body came along for the ride. I know my spirit was there. Body, maybe, but he says, I was there. I, I heard things, inexpressible things. I'm not allowed to tell you, but even if I was, it doesn't matter because I couldn't express him anyway. So either way, I, I can't really explain this experience to you. This is about all I can say. You ever wonder why Paul had such a clear eternal perspective? Why he was so eagerly longing for heaven? Well, he'd been there once. God knew what was coming for Paul. He knew the strength that he would need. And he bolstered him 
with experiences like this. And he says, you know, I'd boast about a man like that, but I don't want to boast about myself except my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. You can see he's talking about himself. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Why? Why didn't he really want to talk about this? Why is he being so secretive about this? Because he doesn't want people to think more of him. Because of this surpassingly great revelation. He doesn't want people to think he's just awesome. Because of this experience that God gave him. And uh, Christians can be prone to act this way. People in general, they have experiences and they want to go around and brag about them. You can look on the uh, bestseller list, New York Times bestsellers, you can find books about people who supposedly went to heaven and returned. And they've written it all up and you can read it for only 1995. I don't know why they'd be selling that experience. 90 minutes in heaven, 60 more minutes in heaven. 30 more minutes in heaven. <laughs> Paul's not doing that. He's not writing this up and selling it for 1995. 14 years later, he finally is forced to kind of obliquely talk about it to these people. But why does he bring it up? He brings it up to show his attitude toward these things. I just, I just want to talk a little bit about spiritual experiences while we're, while we're on the subject. You know, I, I've, had, I've never had an experience like that where Paul went to heaven. You know, I, that would be cool. I would love it. But I haven't had one of those. Uh, it is some spiritual experiences. I mean, these kind of like spiritual highs are something that I have had from my pretty earliest days as a Christian, including I think the very moment I became a Christian. I was overcome with such a sense of euphoria, such a sense of joy, such a sense of peace that uh, I just broke down right there. And um, frankly, for the next month or two, whenever I even turned to God in prayer, maybe not every time, but frequently, I would be overcome by such, such a powerful feeling of joy, I could not believe it. And then, you know, I've been through dry spells. I've, I've, I've had these periodically over the years. Um, you know, just a couple of months ago, I had probably one of the most intense amazing spiritual experiences I've ever had in my life where I was reading this book on heaven that I had read before, but I was reading back over it. And um, I was alone in my office and I, I had read for a little while and I just, all of a sudden, I just felt like God was speaking to me such incredible words of comfort that I just began, began weeping, tears of joy, tears of peace. I felt like he was comforting anxieties I didn't even realize that I had. I felt him speaking to me, and then I, I kind of got it together after weeping for some time, and I would read a little further, and I would break down again. I had just periodic uh, periods of weeping for, the, for two hours. It was incredible. I was completely exhausted emotionally by the time I got done with it, but I was so happy. And um, I don't know why that happened. Uh, I haven't really noticed any correlation that like I'm doing really well spiritually so I'm having more awesome spiritual experiences. Sometimes they come like on the heels of the worst choices I've ever made, the most embarrassing things I've ever done, binges of sin, 
Some of my greatest past experiences have been after some of those. So, I mean, it's not like I was really holy and God hooked me up or something. Um, often centered around God's truth. Reading the word, you just feel like God is speaking directly to you. It just hits you. Reading a spiritual book, uh, listening to a teaching. Sometimes I show up for a teaching and I just feel like, I'm, I'm, I just, I can't believe God is encouraging me in this way. It's pretty cool. There is a need to slow down long enough to listen to God. I do think that's one thing we can do. Like in Psalm 27, David says, my heart has heard you say, Lord, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. God is calling out. God wants to talk with you. This is, this is what, what we could be missing out on if we're never slowing down long enough to listen, to meditate on his truth. And when it comes to these experiences, I'll take as many as I can get, frankly. Uh, I'm, I'm not, not going to turn any of these away. Um, I'm not going to go on strike if I don't get these spiritual experiences either. I remember a period of time where I was really having a hard time even being motivated to spend time with God each day. And I was talking to a friend of mine, and I was like, you know, it's like I show up and I just don't feel anything. And my buddy was like, so What? He's like, even if God's only going to talk to you once a year, I mean, this is an appointment with the king. That's his prerogative. And uh, he's probably going to talk to you more than that. But even if that's all he speaks, isn't it worth it for one time to hear from him? I was like, that's a good point. I think some of us are expecting way too little in this area. We're not giving God a chance to speak to us, to give us that peace and joy, which are some of the top fruits of the Holy Spirit. And these experiences, they're not for boasting, but they could be for strengthening us for a time of suffering. Even we're, Maybe we're in the midst of a time of suffering, and I've had some of those. Great suffering drove me to God's, God's feet, and I experienced his presence. Because um, spiritual highs and success in general, that can put us in real spiritual danger of, of pride. But suffering can bring us back down to reality. That's why Paul brings this up. It's in the context of his weaknesses. Look what he says. This incredible spiritual experience, visiting heaven in a personal way. He says, so in order, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So Paul says, I was really in danger of pride. And therefore, God sent a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. What is he talking about here? A thorn. That's a gruesome picture of a thorn. Doesn't sound like that would feel too good in my flesh. This word, it's not like a little, you know, sticker on a blackberry bush or something. I mean, this is like, I mean, sometimes these are those spears they would sharpen in battle and put around the walls. This thing's pretty, pretty big stake, all right? He doesn't tell us what it is, but it does hurt. He says it, it was tormenting me. Um, you know, with the thorn, I can imagine walking around with a thorn. You'd feel that with every step. You'd feel it when you sleep at night. You would just wish that someone would pull that thing out. It's so painful. You know, even a splinter, it's like it hurts, it hurts. And then if you can pull it out, you're like, oh. And Paul's like, man, this suffering felt of a nature. If, if, if you could somehow get your fingers on it and pull it out of there, you'd be like, oh, bliss. 
A lot of theories on this, maybe some kind of physical ailment. Paul talks about eye problems, an, an ailment that brought him, made him stop in, Gal, in the Galatian churches. Uh, maybe some sort of pain from all these, these uh, persecution he went through. Uh, some theorize a speech impediment. He talks about he can't speak too good. Uh, maybe that was the thing that followed him around and, and kept him from communicating very well. Maybe there was persecution that he's talking about here that would dog him at every step along the way. Maybe someone in particular, he singles out certain individuals that really have caused him trouble, like Alexander the coppersmith who did him much harm. Uh, some think maybe there's a temptation to some sort of sin. I don't know about that. Uh, especially because he asked God to take it away and he doesn't. Um, I suppose it's possible, but I don't know why God would not want him to have victory over sin. Maybe a difficult relationship. This could be a thorn in the flesh, someone Paul had to deal with. Maybe a painful relationship with someone close to him. We don't know. He doesn't say. and um, Maybe that's a good thing that he didn't say. I mean, how many of us can relate to only one or two things on this list? We've got some physical ailment, some sort of natural limitation, maybe our speech, maybe we've experiencing persecution, maybe we've got desires that just won't go away. Uh, maybe there's a, there's a difficult relationship that we are dying. We don't know what to do and it's incredibly painful. Maybe, you know, it's probably good that Paul didn't tell us because a lot of us wouldn't be able to relate to this if he got too specific. And yet when he says there's a thorn in my flesh and I was tormented by it, I think a lot of us can say, I know exactly what you're talking about, Paul. He says it was a messenger of Satan. You know, um, we don't have time to go into the, the problem of evil, but there are a lot of sources of suffering in this fallen world. Some are self-inflicted, dumb things I do that bring pain into my life. Some are inflicted by others, cruelly sometimes. We're victims of abuse and harm at the hands of others. Some are just cause and effect in a fallen world. God is not going to wipe out all suffering in this lifetime. He's, he's creating a new heavens and a new earth where there'll be no more pain or suffering or sorrow. But some suffering has supernatural causes. We see in the book of Job examples of this. And... Um, you know, Satan is real. He can cause harm. And uh, it's, I'm sure he hated Paul and was dying to vent his fury on Paul. And it reached a certain point where Paul, like with Job, God said, okay, go ahead. And God allowed Satan to do something in Paul's life that had lasted, at this point, coming on 14 years, Supernatural suffering is what Paul was experiencing here, this thorn in the flesh. So how did Paul respond to this incredibly painful thing in his life? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Three times. So what did Paul do? He honestly told God how he felt and asked him to take it away. Pleaded with him. He was honest. And one, one reason this is good is sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God will take the suffering away if we ask him to. I've seen that. 
Sometimes he says you don't have because you don't ask. Wouldn't want that to happen. But, uh, you know, he took suffering away at times. You know, Paul was not stiff upper lip where he just, you know, digs down and deals with the pain, gets tough. That's not what he did here. He also didn't numb the pain through sin, which so many of us are tempted to do. I know I've fallen into that. No, Paul let his suffering drive him closer to God. You know, there's certain, certain pine trees whose pine cones will not release their seeds except in the hottest of forest fires. And there are certain things that cannot be released in our relationship with God unless we're under intense suffering. We've got to be desperate to turn to God sometimes. And that's what happened to Paul here. He let his suffering drive him closer to God. It's amazing how cold I can feel toward God when everything's going well and how likely I am to fall to my knees in prayer when things are hard. This doesn't happen overnight either. Notice he says three times. Sometimes you like, you wrestle through something with God and you finally get to a point where you feel like you've accepted this. And then a month or six months or a year or five years goes by and then suddenly something triggers your bitterness and you're angry all over again. And you have another round with God and you feel like you've accepted it. And then again, you find yourself so angry and feeling sorry for yourself and running and you've got to again go in. Watchman E said, nothing hurts so much as dissatisfaction with God's sovereignty. This doesn't happen overnight. This can take time. It's part of the reason why God sometimes leaves that suffering in our lives for a time. Because he loves you. And he wants you to draw near to him. And then Paul says, after I pleaded three times, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let that sink in. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So at a certain point, he stopped to listen to God's answer. You know, C.S. Lewis gives the example of, he says, sometimes when we're suffering, when tragedy hits, we are so frantic, it's like we're pounding on the door as hard as we can and bruising and, 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 and scraping our knuckles as we scream at God from the door and all we hear is silence on the other side. And we think, where is God? Where is God? He seemed so real when things were good and now, when I need him the most, it feels like nobody's home. And he says, you're, it's like you're in a hurricane of anger. And then as time passes and you're able to quiet down a little bit, you're able to hear the answer that God was trying to give you all along. It takes faith to stop and listen. How is God's grace sufficient for you? Well, he promises he'll never leave you. He'll be right there with you, strengthening you. You may find a new closeness in this suffering that you never had before. I also think, you know, I deserve a lot worse than this. I'm suffering, but, 
should be worse. I, don't, I never deserved anything good from God. Any, any day you wake up and you're not in hell, that's a, that's a really good day. Because that's what I deserve. Appreciation for what God's given you. Knowing he'll use this for good, he'll use this to make you more like Christ. That's really good to remember. That's been my experience. Way more growth through times of suffering than times of success. I'm sort of hard to be around when I'm really succeeding. And this one here, we got to make it all the way to this point, that he will make it up to you in heaven. You need to be able to say with confidence, I might never get that in this life. This might be something I deal with until the day that I die. But I know this life is so short compared to eternity. And I know that whatever God doesn't see fit to say yes to now, I'm excited to see what he's got for me in heaven. That's the place of faith. That's hope. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Yes, that is why for Christ's sake I I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, all the kinds of suffering your thorn could take. When I'm weak, then I am strong. Paul understood. He understood what was on the other end of suffering. And so third and finally, he accepted God's answer. He pled with God. He listened to what God had to say. And then he accepted what God had to say. We throw our tantrums. We don't like what God has to say sometimes. We'd be a lot better off if we could accept his answer. Paul knew it's only when reliance on self ends that reliance on God can begin. We need to be brought past the end of our own strength, and that's when our weakness that we used to call, we used to think was so strong, that's when it can really get the strength of God. And you know, this passage... um, it's really interesting for me, given the, uh, what's been happening in my life over the last couple of months. I, um, just over two months ago, I was um, helping my dad move a fridge, and we kind of lost control of the fridge, and I tried to stop it with my shoulder. And uh, my collarbone did that. Not the first time I've broken this thing. And so I went in for surgery, and they put one of these in, and I was just like, you know, out of commission for weeks. Couldn't do anything, couldn't lift anything. And um, then I got sick and I was just like laid up, you know. My doctor was finally like, you got to stop doing anything. Your body's trying to heal itself. And then I was getting to the end of my sickness. I was getting to the end of the, uh, the healing period for this. And then one day I woke up and my shoulder was feeling pretty funny. And I went in for an x-ray and the x-ray looked like this. And my doctor was like, I've been in medicine for 30 years and I've never seen this from a titanium plate. He was like, what were you doing? I said, I was lying on the couch for four straight days because my other doctor told me to. He asked my wife, he's like, was he doing yard work or something? My wife's like, no, actually, he makes me do all the yard work. (laughs) (laughs) She really likes it, though. Um, (laughs) 
And so they went back in and they put another one in with more screws and longer and that was like three weeks ago. And um, I felt about as weak as I've ever felt over the past couple of months and um, feeling nauseous a lot of times and um, feeling like other people are having to do stuff that I normally would be able to do and knowing I'm, I'm causing hardship for others as well. And um, I was reading this... Um, this book by Andrew Murray called Humility. It's actually, somebody went through and updated the language in the version I was reading to be a lot more modern. But God really spoke to me through this. He said, the highest lesson a believer has to learn is humility. Do you want to grow in Christ-likeness? Then remember, the road to Christ-likeness passes through humbling experiences. You could have intense consecration, fervent zeal, and deep experiences, but unless you receive God's special dealings to humble you, you could grow prideful and self-important. Humility only comes if we give God permission to lead us through whatever discipline he requires to train us. Let's look at our lives in light of Paul's experience. He's talking about 2 Corinthians 12. Have we learned to regard a criticism, whether fair or not, as an opportunity to draw near to Jesus in quietness and peace? Good question. What about when someone brings on us into a situation of trouble or difficulty that we didn't ask for? Will we accept that our own pleasure and honor are worthless? Will we be grateful for the humbling? It is a great bless- blessing, the deep happiness of heaven, to be so free from self. That's what I want. That whatever is said about us or done to us is lost and swallowed up in the thought that Jesus is our inheritance. The danger of pride is greater and nearer than we realize, especially at the time of our richest blessings. When God's provision is present with powerful effect, when miracles are happening, when others take notice, there are hidden subconscious dangers there. Paul was in danger without knowing it. What Jesus did for him is recorded for our learning so that we could recognize our own, our own dangers and realize our only place of safety. And I just realized, I mean, if I get humility out of this, that's worth a couple of months of suffering. It could be so much worse. I'd need it bad. And um, I just saw God's loving hand in the whole thing, allowing this to happen, being with me, keeping it from being worse, and knowing that one day that we're going to lay this old tent of our body aside anyway and go to get new ones in heaven. So what have we seen here tonight? God wants to use your suffering for good. Will you respond by running, complaining, feeling sorry for yourself, throwing tantrums? Or will you respond like Paul does here, with an honest conversations with God, listening for his answer, with accepting his answer? Will you allow your weakness to drive you to God's strength? This is the greatest thing that could ever come from your suffering. This is what can make you look back on the most painful times in your life and say, thank God that that happened. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. And let's never forget, my grace is sufficient for you. If you're a non-Christian and you think there's no way God could accept me, that's false. Because God says my grace is sufficient for you. If you're a Christian that feels like you've messed up too bad and you can never recover, that's false too. Because God says my grace is sufficient for you. And if you're suffering and feeling that strong desire to give up, I say hang in there. Because Christ says my grace is sufficient for you. So, 
2 Corinthians 12. A great passage. All right, well, let's pray. Yes, Lord, thanks that we know that um, if we're one of yours, if we've received Christ, that you don't let a single moment of suffering go to waste. Lord, we don't suffer in vain like the world does, but we suffer under your divine protection. You've only let as much into our lives as you've decided to let in, and you've given us the strength to endure. And uh, you want to teach us something through that endurance, Lord. I pray that we can learn to say with all of our hearts what Paul is saying here, to affirm that statement that your grace is sufficient for us and that we would be able to rejoice and count it all joy when we experience all kinds of different suffering. I pray, Lord, that we would allow our suffering to drive us to you, that we would experience new levels of closeness with you, or maybe even a relationship with you for the first time ever. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.